Hello everyone, and welcome. How to overcome fear of success is the topic we will be addressing. This uh, class and program is in honor of the birthday of Leah Tiferet, Bat Fega, and Faiva Leib on 13th of Kislev, and the Yotzeit of Sura Risha Bat Leah on the 19th of Cheshvan. Fear of failure is something we are all aware of. Many of us do not want to attempt a particular project because we're afraid we may fail, be embarrassed, feel demoralized, be laughed at, be mocked, or whatever else goes into that picture. As a matter of fact, you ask most people about fear itself, and they'll tell you that fear is associated with the concerns and the doubts whether we will succeed, whether we will accomplish what we set out to do. In other words, it's connected to our concerns of our inadequacy or our inability to achieve something. Fear. When you can identify the fear, it's usually connected to something that. But when you hear of the fear, to fail to, the fear of success, that right away rise, rises eyebrows. Is it indeed possible? And we know it is because the fact is that way that we, we may be undermining our own, our very own interests. And why would a person do that? It's one thing you're afraid to fail, so you're afraid to try, so you, know, you stay the status quo. But why would someone be afraid of success? If you succeed, then on the contrary, you've achieved what you set out to do. It's a validation of your dreams, of your aspirations, of what you really want to accomplish. Others will compliment you for that. Why would you be afraid of success? And yet, that's a very real reality. So it, 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 it uh, compels us to start thinking, one second, what exactly is the anatomy of fear? And that's what we'll be dissecting in this, in this discussion. The anatomy, the very nature of fear. To explore what really makes us tick. Because when you understand your fears and also your courage, what makes us tick, we may come to discover something very interesting. That it's not the fear of failure or the fear of success, maybe the fear, which we will be talking about at length, relatively speaking, the fear of getting out of your comfort zone, the fear of trying something different. And that lies at the heart of most, many of our uh, both known and unknown fears. So the objective of this class, this discussion, is to obviously understand this topic, but most importantly to come away with, a method with methodologies and tools that we can actually check ourselves in evaluating and exploring those inner psychological forces that drive our decisions to come away with a newly, a newly discovered courage to take on challenges and above all to live up to our aspirations and dreams and to be the best you can be without yourself getting in your own way. Now, I've talked about the topic of fear many times, particularly in the context of it being an invisible enemy. You know, it's one thing you have an enemy, you have somebody that has sworn enemy of yours that's competing with you or wants to in some way undermine you. You know the enemy, you can define it, it maybe a formidable enemy. And there's so many different levels. I'm just using it as an example. None of us should have such enemies, but it's something we can relate to. 
But when you talk about fear, fear, where is it exactly? Where is it lurking? Which part of our spirit? And where will it pop its head? Because of its invisibility, we all know an invisible enemy is always more difficult to fight than a visible one. And in many ways, many psychologists and many people who study human nature and the human condition will say fear lies at the heart of so many of our decisions or indecisions. Now, there's fears that we're aware of. You know, you know clearly I'm afraid of trying this, either because I never did it, it's uh, overwhelming, it's intimidating. And then there are the unknown fears, meaning we don't really know that we're afraid of, but we just stay away from it, and unconsciously we avoid something without even consciously saying, I'm intimidated. Of course, the second sort is a harder one because we can't even identify it. So the big question, and this always comes down to our own inner integrity, when we ask ourselves, when we face our own insecurities and fears, which is a hard thing to do, but if you want to get anywhere, you need to be able to look at it and say, what am I afraid of? <clears throat> so there's the common response that one of the big fears people have is to be accepted. We're social creatures. I'm not saying social animals. We're social creatures, which means we need others. We need people's validation all the way from the youngest of age when we're children in our parents' homes, and then from our peers and our educators and the people we meet. And we are not comfortable when we are, we are rejected or sidelined or marginalized or laughed at because we're social creatures, and social creatures live give and take with other human beings. Nothing wrong with that. But that in some subtle way, and maybe not so subtle, also is the root of many fears. Because will we be accepted? Will the community, will, my, will our peers, will our society see me as someone that fits in? Will they admire me? Will they respect me? Will they validate me? And when we feel um, scapegoated or, or stereotyped or excommunicated or blacklisted, you name these are very, very demoralizing forces. It lies also at the heart of some of the problem, of some of the real injuries done by bullying. What is bullying? Bullying means your classmates, people that you go to school with every day, gang up on you. So besides the actual bullying of really like threatening you or feeling intimidated, there's something else going on. You're not being accepted by the group. You're being rejected. You're being um, ostracized. These are very strong experiences. That's why you find excommunication has very deep impact, especially in, even in religious history, because it's that you're being, you're being targeted. You're being, um, what's the word I want to use? You're being uh, chosen in a bad way. You're being targeted to stand out and be different than the others. Now, we all understand that our individuality, individuality and our self-confidence should dictate that we are individuals, despite whether the group accepts us or not. But even if you're a nonconformist and you have a certain independent streak and a free spirit, it's not the conformity per se, but the fact is we all need others. That person who says, I need nobody, and I don't care what anybody thinks, to that extreme, it may sound very admirable poetically, but it usually comes with a price as well. Because then you pull yourself out of the whole community. So we want to have a good balance between our individuality and our being accepted and part of the community. 
Now, some people who really are radical individualists paid heavy prices. I'm not saying they didn't achieve anything, but I don't think we have to go one extreme or the other. It doesn't mean total conformity or total independence. It's in Hillel's balanced words. If I'm not for myself, who will be for me? That's the individuality. If I'm only for myself, what am I? Because the fact is, any organism, including the communal organism, requires symbiosis. It requires cooperation, interconnectivity, coordination, besides coexistence, and more than just coexistence, as I said, coordination, each complements the other. That's how any healthy community and society functions. So I always give the example of a symphony, a musical symphony. What is it? Many different instruments, many different musicians, each playing their song, their notes, at their moment, at their time, at their beat, and all together coming and creating harmony. And that's only possible, harmony within diversity. Now the balance is a challenge at times, or more than at times, but that's what we aspire to. Bringing it back to fears, so what I'm saying is it's not only because some of us are just conformists and we just want to be accepted and, and please others and be, make everybody happy live up to other people's expectations. Even if you're a nonconformist, even if you're a healthy nonconformist, you also <clears throat> have a need for others. Firstly, you need them to complement things you cannot do. None of us can do everything ourselves, at least not, definitely not well. In addition, we want their validation. We do want it. And it's not necessarily because of ego or arrogance. There's something in human nature, as I said, the healthy version. I'm not talking about overdone that is healthy to have validation. It's healthy to come home from school as a child and your father and mother look at you and say, you know, I'm very proud of what you did today. First of all, it's healthy for the human condition, for the human spirit and heart and soul to feel, uh, to feel validated, to feel valued and, um, and, and, and reinforced for good things that we do. And secondly, that itself cultivates a sense of more confidence. It's like when someone you respect says that you really did that well, then you'll try it again, you'll do it again. They dismiss you, invalidate you, in some ways criticize you. Not constructive criticism. It undermines a person's willpower and confidence in themselves and self-esteem. So with that said, then you could argue that fear, the fear of not being accepted, the fear of not having that validation, lies at the heart of many, many of our fears. Again, I'm not talking about the fears now that are, uh, we're not, you know, we're talking about the fears that on most cases, social fears, family, within the community, within, within, even with our siblings, even with our peers, definitely with strangers. <clears throat> so if that's the case, you can argue that what's wrong with that fear? Maybe it's part of our, our, our existence, and indeed it is. It becomes a problem when it becomes, the fear becomes a dominant force. It's not just a natural shame. Look, it's natural to walk into a room of strangers and you're not, let's say, you're just coming out of the shell. You're growing up and the first time you go to summer camp, the first time you go to school and dorm in a school, first time you're away from your own home, it's natural to have a certain hesitation. You just don't want it to be a hesitation that paralyzes you and doesn't allow you to forge ahead. But it's natural to have natural shame, as we call break the ice, get to know people. So then it's a controlled, I wouldn't call that fear, I would say a controlled element of reserve or reservation 
before you engage. And this is also one of our protective tools. You meet someone, let's say an interview for a job or a coworker or a date on a romantic level, a courtship. It's a normal thing to not just come in all the way. You come in with certain defenses. Not to be defensive, but I mean to say your defenses are up. Your alert is up because you want to see if this person is someone you want to trust. So even the healthiest version is not just, oh, my open book, whatever you want, I'll tell you. You, you tread carefully. It's called due diligence. It's called research. It's called getting to know someone, acquaintance, acquainting yourself. And as you do, you see, this is a person that my instincts tell me, my intelligence tells me, my emotions tell me. It's worthwhile to get to know, to open up more. That's all normal. When, it's, when it gets abnormal, meaning where it becomes a destructive force, is when either you open up completely without any of these uh, filters or veils, or the other way around, you never open up because of fear. Of what? Of rejection, of being judged. Which often comes because you may have had that in your life. We cannot ignore the fact that if a person growing up in a judgmental home that criticized and did not validate, or rarely validated and consistently criticized, or enough to make an impact, what happens? You grow being tentative. Does that mean a full-blown fear? Not necessarily, but tentative, yes. Tentative means you are careful, to the point of cautious, to the point that many times you won't make a move because you'd rather be safe than sorry. All maybe with, and you can even have good justifications. And many of them, them may be, even be legitimate. But how do you know that you're not closing yourself off, off to certain opportunities? But this fear, you can argue, is a fear of failure. Fear, fear of not succeeding, of not being accepted, not being loved. That if that person really knew me, they really wouldn't like me. If that person knows what I do, they wouldn't accept me. Or person, or people, community. So we have this so-called little secrets, or big secrets that we keep to ourselves, and the way we lock ourselves up and don't open up that part of ourselves. Now, you can imagine there are very variations of this tentativeness. It can be mild, and even, as I said, a healthy form, but then it can get more extreme, more extreme. You have to determine where you are on that spectrum. And it takes an honest appraisal, as I said before, because many of us don't want to acknowledge. Many say, no, I'm not afraid. It's just I haven't met the right person. Or I've been betrayed and I'm being careful. I met people that say that, and I know, because either I know them or because I sense that you know, there's more going on. But if, if you're not ready to acknowledge that, then you basically your excuse is going to be your fallback position. It's not me. It's I just haven't met. And you can justify that the rest of your life. And the truth is, it's much, a big part of it is your own fears. But what really lies at this fear, if you talk about the fear of acceptance, it's not the fear of failure per se. It's the fear of wanting to be, please, wanting to be accepted, wanting to be validated. Which again, on a healthy version is a fine thing. An unhealthy version is that it undermines and doesn't let you grow. Now with that being said, let's carry that over. What about success? The key to success, the fear of success is not that you're afraid of the per se, the success. It's a fear of making a move and getting out of your initial position where you are right now. My description, I wrote, the fear of change. And I, I want to share something that I, uh, my own personal experience, I think I've shared in the past, when I was, in, uh, I was a kid. So 
I was able, uh, the summer, you know, you go to summer, first of bungalow colony, later camp. And I was a relatively fine swimmer, swimming in the pool. One of the bungalow colonies, we had a lake, but a pool. And, but then I wanted to learn how to dive. I don't remember how old I was. I must have been nine, ten, maybe around then. <clears throat> now diving, so what? You know, there's a diving board. I wasn't, I wasn't afraid of water because I swam in the water, but I had this fear of diving into the water. Okay, so you know what I said to myself? You know what, maybe the diving board's a little intimidating. It's too high up. I'll dive from the edge of the pool. I stood at the edge of the pool, and I just cannot bring myself to jump, to dive in. And, you know, I started these t- countdowns. I'll count, okay, I'm going to count from 10, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6. Comes to 1. No, we'll do another count. I'll count from 100 this time. So to speak, convince yourself these countdowns are going to make it easier. And I, summers went by, more than one summer, that I never ended up diving. This is my own little phobia or fears or whatever we want to call it, inhibition. Okay. And, but I, you know, thinking back, I'll tell you what happened soon, but thinking back, what's the fear? What was I afraid of? What was I afraid of diving? I know how to stand on the ground on the edge, fine. I know I can end up in the pool and how to swim. It's not like I'm afraid of drowning. So what are you afraid? Afraid of a belly flop? I remember they used to tell us, if you, if you go swimming after eating, you make, you jump, your stomach can burst open. I wasn't afraid of that. What was I afraid of? Anyway, the next summer came, I started the same process again. The countdowns. Then I decided, you know what? Instead of standing on the edge of the pool, I'm going to sit. And I'll just fall into the pool like that. <laughs> Even that was too, too, too frightening. And by the way, jumping in the pool I had no problem with. You know, just, you know, we jump in feet first. It was the head first thing. Anyway, I'm sitting one day by the pool, making my, my ridiculous countdowns. Someone, a friend of mine, Ready, saw where I'm at. Maybe he went through the same thing. He snuck up behind me, and I was doing this thing with the counting. He pushed me in. And I went in head first like that from sitting on the edge of the pool. At first, I was furious at him. But you know what? I ended up in the pool, and I never had fear anymore. And then it was easy for me. Then I got back. I did it again. Then I did standing. Then I went on the diving board. Till this day, I don't really know what was the fear? But here's my theory. My theory. My theory is that standing on the ground, I wasn't afraid of. I know how to stand on the ground. Well, all of us do. I know how to walk. I know how to run. Once I'm in the pool, I know what to do. But that split second where you're not on the ground and not in the pool and you're head first, a sense of almost like out of control, even though that's not true, but in my mind, it's like that suspension. You're not here, you're not there. That was the fear. The fear of a shift. So you jump in head feet first. That's not a shift. That's, that's you know, your feet first. But you jump with head first, there's that fear. And until you don't do it, it's, it's very frightening. Now, I'm not saying everybody has this fear. I had it. Maybe you can relate to it. Maybe you can give other examples. Is the fear of a shift. A shift from the comfort to a new state. Fear of change. And that is a very profound fear, which again has an element of positivity to it, which we'll talk about, but it also can have an element of paralysis, of element of procrastination, of finding excuses.
So let's talk about shifts now, paradigm shifts, smaller shifts. What is a shift? So a shift is not if you take a pitcher of water and pour a cup of water into, and pour it into a cup and you drink. There's no shift going on here. Taking water, you recognize that it's in a pitcher. You can't drink from the pitcher. So you pour it into a cup. A shift is when there's a qualitative shift that's not a natural flow from one state to another. Natural flows are understandable. It's when something shifts and goes into a different state, a metamorphosis. I remember reading, I forgot what the name of the book was, but it was basically the metamorphosis of a caterpillar into a butterfly. And it's like, it's two halves of the book. One, the first half talks about the caterpillar, how it is the consciousness, the psyche of a caterpillar, and as the caterpillar goes into the chrysalis, into its cocoon, into that state, and the cocoon is closing up, what the caterpillar is thinking. So you would think the caterpillar is thinking, here I was in the bright daylight. Slowly it's getting darker and darker as the chrysalis closes up, and the caterpillar is probably thinking, I'm dying. Then what happens next? Now we've never interviewed a caterpillar or a butterfly, so this is just projecting. What happens next is it's going through a change. The caterpillar evolves and metamorphosizes into a butterfly. And then slowly the chrysalis begins to open. And a beautiful butterfly is right there waiting to emerge with wings now, developed wings, and will fly. A monarch, beautiful, colorful butterfly, for example. So what is the psyche of the butterfly? Does it remember that it was a caterpillar? Does it remember ones that it was just crawling on the ground and could not soar and fly? Interesting questions. But there's definitely, if you, if you use it as a metaphor for shift, it's definitely a metaphor that can be very fearful. Is the closing of one life and beginning another. Same thing with a tadpole into a frog. And frankly, the same is with us as human beings from childhood through adolescence to adulthood. Or as the mystics put it, from when the soul, before it enters our bodies upon conception, until we give birth, until we're born, and enter this world. There's a trauma involved. The trauma of birth, the trauma even of conception, the trauma of something traveling and changing course. But not a small change, a new reality. And we all can relate it using two words, comfort zone. Comfort zone. We all have our comfort zones. And when you're forced, or whatever reason this causes you to go out of your comfort zone, it's very disconcerting, very disorienting. And we are not comfortable. That's the definition of a comfort zone. You're comfortable. Now you're not comfortable. Now, of course, we all know that every part of growth requires that type of shift. If you're going to stay in your comfort zone, you're going to get what your comfort zone offers you. As I always say, if you think what you thought, you say what you said, you do what you did, what are you going to have? What you had. And a continuation of the past. Insanity, as they say, is someone who believes they will do the same thing and yield different results. If you, nothing changes, nothing changes. The shifts, and especially those out of our comfort zone, is precisely the discomfort is what catapults you into a new reality. And this is true for all of us as we go through adolescence and we suddenly become adults, or not suddenly. There's a certain stage, 
everyone will come to a certain consciousness shift where you suddenly say, you know what? The child I was, my classmate, my school, the environment I was in, my family, I am now realized the umbilical cord, metaphorically, is being cut again. I'm not just an extension of them. My life is not dependent completely on their approval or on their interactions with me. That doesn't mean you're cut off, and it doesn't mean that you have to cut off. But there's a certain sense of loneliness even. I remember someone going through this adolescent stage, a little younger than I, like maybe three, four years younger, and he came to speak to me about it. And, you know, I smiled to myself because I realized he's going to that stage, and I told him, you know, we all come to a point like that. And I said, everybody? Because he felt so lonely in this process. I said, it's a loneliness of discovering that you're an entity that is a self-contained entity in addition to the fact that you were born to your parents and you have siblings and friends and so on. And there's a stage where, like the dive, where you're not here and not there. In the, the Kabbalists, the mystics call it the stage of the void or the vacuum in between two states of being. That every metamorphosis has. Here's the state of being. You shed a layer of skin. Before you assume the new layer, there's this in-between stage. You're not here, you're not there. The seed as it begins to deteriorate and rot in the ground, it's not yet a full sapling, and definitely not a, 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 a grown into a brush or a flower or a tree. But it's no longer a seed either. And this is the metamorphosis everybody goes through, naturally, biologically, but, and this is the real key, the ones we go through that we initiate, that we proactively initiate to grow. Anyone, I'll use creativity as an example, and everyone has creativity, whether you're a person building a business, or you are a designer, or you're an artist, or you're a musician, or you're a writer. Whatever you're doing, there's always a necessity for some form of growth in what you're doing. And I will say, even people whose job is not necessarily to make the business grow, but just to maintain it, or to enter data, and so on, I would, I would submit that you're not living up to your potential until you cr- bring some of your creative juices and creative energy into the, into the equation. So anyone especially, but I, that's why I want to use example, as a writer. You write something, there's always a tentativeness. You have an idea. The idea is not yet fully developed, not fully concretized. You start writing, you start saying, is this idea an important idea? Maybe it's a waste of time. How do I express it? And there's always going to be an awkwardness and even a deeper frustration, creative frustration, before you get to writing something that's half-decent. How often does it happen? You research, gather data, and then you become more confused than you ever were. The more you know, the more confused you are. And you think, I'm never going to be able to make order. How many times has it happened to me sitting down writing? The whole topic is so overwhelming. The more I know, the less I know. But if you have experience, you realize you're on your right path. Because then, slowly, you keep sitting with it. You keep trying. There's a, break, there's a breakthrough. You suddenly start, the picture begins to emerge. But preceding that, there's always going to be a measure of frustration. And sometimes, you know what? You just retreat. I don't want to be uncomfortable. I'll just go back. I wrote something. I'll stick with that. But all growth is a result of discomfort. The discomfort of going from one paradigm to a new paradigm, to change. So the fear of success then makes total sense. 
It's not just fear of failure that I'm not succeeding what I want to achieve. It's the fear of change. What happens when I'll succeed? Will I be able to maintain the success? There's deeper levels, which I'll get to in a few minutes. Will I be able to maintain it? Will it be really the success that I really could have achieved? I know for myself, and I'm sure others as well, sometimes fear of success is because you feel you'll succeed, but you know what? Then maybe you've reached your plateau. You've reached your ceiling. So you almost don't want to succeed because that way you can always convince yourself there's so much more to achieve. I'm not going to run a 22-mile marathon because I can run a 42-mile marathon. And if I do that successfully, it may show that I've really not achieved what I could achieve. This could be very delusional, of course. You create your own fantasies of uh, destinations and goals. What do they say? The enemy of good is perfect, not bad. The enemy of good is perfect, not the bad. You think the enemy of good is bad. No, building something, build it good. If you try to build it perfect, you won't even make it, won't make it good. Even. Which is what today, especially everyone learns from Google, everything should be in a beta form. Don't wait for perfection. Do the best, and then you can improve it. The best thing is get it done. Get something done. Now, of course, there are things that are life and death that you're not going to do because there's danger involved. I'm not talking about that. But generally speaking, write it. I have this block all the time. I start writing something, and on the first page, unless I have it really clear in my mind, I start thinking I can't do it. And sometimes you must force yourself to write it. I'll maybe write the last sentence first. Get something on the paper, and that sometimes you're afraid to put it on paper because you don't have it all figured out. What's the big thing? Put it on paper. Put it on a computer. And then manipulate it. Work with it. Improve it. It's the changes that are so challenging. It's not the success or the failure per se. That's also part of it. But it's ultimately the change. And that's why you find as, we, as bizarre and as, as can I say, as crazy as it sounds, there are people who live toxic lives. They grew up in dysfunctional environment and they thrive on dysfunctionality. They thrive on crisis. And if there isn't a crisis, they'll create one. And they're more comfortable when there's crisis than when there's peace. That's because you've gotten used to it. It's like someone who's breathed toxic air for years and years. You give them some fresh air, they start coughing. And they think it's not normal. And you say, you know what, you're breathing toxic air. It's a big shift. Why? Because it's a change. Well, it's a change for the better, but I'm comfortable. The, ne- the known evil is easier than the unknown evil. People will say that, definitely feel that way. Because they're afraid, if I get out of this, what knows what, who's got, what's lurking, what's coming next? All this is the trap of the comfort zone that we all have a tendency to gravitate to. And every one of us has it. Those that are high achievers and really ambitious, they know how to overcome it. They push, they force, or they've come to learn and recognize it and see it as like somewhat of an, a, a, as a, 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 an adversary. And they see it as a challenge to overcome. Sometimes you overcome it, sometimes you don't. But the point is <clears throat> that everybody has the fear of comfort zone, just like the caterpillar and the butterfly. But there, as I said, biologically, we can't change. The fact is you're going to grow from a child to an adult. But are you going to grow so mostly into an adult? Not just chronologically. Not just that you have larger body and therefore have adult clothing. 
but also psychologically and emotionally and spiritually. The things we deliberately, what we have to choose, as I said, that's where the real challenge is. The fact that we will grow, there will be biological metamorphosis in each of our lives is a given. Just like baby teeth will fall out and the, and the adult teeth will come in, that's not up to us. Whether we like it or not, that's what happens. Just like cells will die and new cells will replace them. But where the real difference between the boys and the men, if you wish, the girls and the women, from the, uh, is the people who take initiative to overcome the comfort zone and the fear of change and just instead of staying here, be safe, are ready to take the risk to try something new. Sometimes succeed, sometimes not. But that is where it comes from. Realizing that change and shifts is where the real secret to growth lies. All growth. And the greater the growth, the more the void and the frustration that precedes it. Guaranteed. Because when you make a true shift from one state to another, if it's a small shift, okay, it's still something. But if it's a big shift, if you're going to jump from one place, one paradigm to another, it's a completely new picture. They have this experiment, talk about caterpillars and butterflies. So caterpillar-butterfly analogy. Caterpillars have been proven to be ultra-conformists. If you put caterpillars in a line, several of them, they'll follow each other like one straight line. They follow the leader. So an experiment was made where the caterpillars were put in a circle. In other words, one caterpillar following the other caterpillar in a circle. So you had these caterpillars going around in a circle. A piece of food that caterpillars eat, maybe a leaf, whatever it is that they eat, was put in the center of the circle. You want to know what happened? You won't believe it. The caterpillars just followed each other till they died. They never went for the food. Because their following the leader is so innate in their being, in their psyche, that that's what they did. Why? Because a caterpillar it walks on the ground. It looks ahead. It looks down. It doesn't look up for new opportunities. But the survival instinct you think to eat something would be the thing that go. Now, I haven't confirmed this recently, but I remember reading this. And it's interesting if that indeed is the case. A butterfly develops wings. Wings soar. So even though I'm sure butterflies, if they see each other, they'll fly together as we see ducks do and geese and so on, and birds in very interesting patterns, coordinated patterns, and there's reasons for that too. But still a butterfly, because it flies, it has its own unique individuality. That's a paradigm shift in consciousness. We too have a part of us that's a survivor within us. The survivor within us looks down on the ground, at the earth, and looks around who's supporting us, who's leading the way, and I follow and even to the point of self-destruction. Then we grow into adults, and now we have wings. You're no longer completely dependent on your parents, or on your school, or on others. What are you going to do with your voice, with your song? Will you soar? Will your song be expressed? And that can be very terrifying. It was much easier to be under the wings and the protection of parents, of schooling. You know, it's, it's predictable. The scene of the Shawshank Redemption that became a big 
sleeper hit is that some prisoners would rather be in prison because they know the regimen. They're in prison. They can't move about freely in this world, but they know their place there. And that becomes a certain security. Security even in a place that's a prison. And going out to the world, you're suddenly really free. You can do whatever you want. These things can be terrifying. Some people will choose prison over freedom because it's predictable. It's the pattern. The change is the difficulty. It's their comfort zone. So comfort zones, to some, in some degree, have a value. When, you know, to be consistently out of your comfort zone. Always uncomfortable is not the goal. Like I always talk about the cardiogram. You need to have some measure of peace and resolution. But you also need for a heart to really beat. You ha- need to have some tension. Some angst. So the heart goes, there's the peaks and the valleys. We don't want extremes. We want balance. But that's the movement of life, the mobility of life, the pulse, the pulsating energy that the Kabbalists call rotze and shuv, the dual movement, to and fro, contraction, expansion. Exhale, inhale. The pulsating energy of even the subatomic particles that make up the very DNA of existence. That pulsating energy is essential because it means things are constantly moving. There's always a shift. And no problem, don't jump 10 steps at a time. You go one step at a time. One rung of the ladder at a time. But but climb. And every climb has an element of being disconcerted because when you leave the earlier state, you go to a new state, there's always going to be some measure of discomfort. So that's why we don't always jump extreme paradigm shifts. Like I just said with the example of the ladder or the steps. Go step by step. Keep your leg on the early, previous step as you make your way to the next step. Then move that step to the next step. Now there, most people are not going to experience tentativeness because we climb steps all the time. But when it comes to growth, growth in our personal lives, in our professional lives, in our emotional lives, in our spiritual lives, there it becomes more tentative. Because we're concerned, I'm here. Why would I take the risk? So fear of success is a very interesting insight into the human condition because it actually reveals to us, more than fear of failure, what lies at the heart of our concerns and our fears, the change. In addition to what I said, which is also, I believe, very important, and that is that success, sometimes you say, you know what, if I didn't, if I, I could always say, I didn't really try. That way, my success, in my mind, can be much greater. But we all understand where that leaves you. That leaves you in a state of potential all the time, saying, I didn't really try, and if I tried, I'd really be able to do much better than anyone has ever done. Like someone saying, I'm not even going to try to write a book, because the book I would want to write is better than anyone has ever written. But how will we ever know if you don't try? So in your mind, you can, and your fragile ego, and your own inner insecurity, you can convince yourself, since I didn't do it yet, that means that my potential to do something greater than anyone has ever done is still intact. If I did it, if I succeeded, then it's not necessarily the case. But that itself requires more discussion as well. I am speaking about the shifts and the changes, which really lies at the heart. 
even a fear of success. Not just what I just said about that, that element of a grandiose uh, delusion that you can do something no one has ever done. That's not what we're expecting of you. We're expecting to do what you are capable of doing. So now, my friends, I ask you the question. And I ask myself the question. How much of our potential is not being actualized because we are want to stay in our comfort zone? How much of our potential is not being actualized because we want to stay in our comfort zone? And we don't want to be rattled. We don't want to be shaken. We don't want to rock the boat. Not for ourselves, not for those around us. Good question to ask yourself. The question of a wise person is half an answer. By asking yourself this question, you're beginning the journey toward a greater place. So that's what we need to be looking at when we talk about fear, courage. And again, it's not about chewing off more than you can... Uh, chewing off, what do I want to say? Bite, uh, chewing more than you can bite. Chewing off, take it step by step, but movement, forward movement. And have it verified by a friend that's objective that can help you look beyond your own subjective realities. Because we all have our farms. We all have our narrow way of looking at things. Maybe not so narrow, but our subjective way of looking at things. And what you want to achieve is places that are beyond our own subjective um, perspective. And that's when you really begin to grow. Now, when you learn and you study about the soul, which I always advocate, studying teachings that teach you about your soul, you, suddenly re- you come to realize, I don't know, suddenly you come to realize <clears throat> the infinite potential of this reservoir within you the infinite potential of these strengths and abilities that you have. And when the more you recognize it, it's like someone exposing to you and showing you, here's something you're able to do that you never thought you're capable of doing. What happens is a tremendous force opens up because now you're seeing new horizons. Then will be the challenge, the courage, to muster up the courage and the strength to be able to pursue and not allow yourself to be driven by fear that holds you back. That's the objective. But the point of the whole picture is that you're looking up. And as you look up, you see a new horizon. You say, wow. So like anything in life, as an expression that the Rabbi Shneir Zaman of Liadi said, it's always important to know how small you are and how large you can become. What's the point? Because how large we can become, a lot of people have a certain imagination of how large they can become, real or not real. But they don't know where they stand. So then how are you ever going to get there? Because you may convince yourself you're already there. On the other hand, some people know very well their inadequacies. And say how small they are. But they don't know how large they can become. And it's the balance of the two that creates the necessary angst and discomfort that moves you from small to larger. So you need to have the picture. And then you look at yourself. Then you need to build the strength and say, I want to get from here to here. And then grow from here to here. And what is so beautiful is this. That we have the capacity to do these shifts more than once in our lives. On an ongoing basis. There's an expression in the Talmud that says, righteous people, sometimes another version is scholars, don't have peace. Not in this world, not in the world to come. And the big question is asked, what do you mean they don't have peace? What kind of virtue is that? 
Shouldn't everyone deserve a little peace? Peace of mind, peace of heart. Manucha in Hebrew. As a matter of fact, it says the world to come, the future, the messianic age, it says it will be a yemsha, it will be a day that will be complete and constant and perpetual peace, manucha. The same word. So how do you reconcile perpetual peace or no peace ever, no peace at all? And one of the fascinating answers is that they will be at peace with the fact that they have no peace. So not having peace can be in a negative way. Anxiety, serious tensions that demoralize you, that break you, that break your spirit and don't let you grow. Or there's healthy lack of peace. A healthy sense of wanting to, wanting to always climb and grow. And knowing that that is always going to be somewhat, the shift, the change, is going to be a little disconcerting. It's going to create a little lack of peace. Total peace would be, I'm just comfortable with what I have and stay here the rest of my life. So the righteous and the scholars have that capacity. People who are truly curious will never say, I know enough. Knowledge always causes more curiosity. You say, well, I know enough. I've learned so much. The more you know, the more you want to know. The more you know, the more you know how much you're still left to know. So it propels you to continue on. And yes, is it uncomfortable? Of course, if you've studied and studied and studied, then you now have to take a new text, a new book, a new idea, and try to assimilate it. You could say, you know, it's a new effort. A writer, an artist, a healthy one is never going to say, you know, I created enough art, I created enough writing. There's a voice in us that says that. That voice, of course, is the voice of, of being in your comfort zone. I'm not looking at, you know, I, I did my, I paid my dues. But the natural spirit, as I said before, breathes. Exhale, inhale all the time. Never say, you know what, I've done enough exhaling and enough inhaling. Enough, enough of the heartbeat contracting and expanding. That's life. Life is an ongoing pump, an ongoing pulse. And the same thing is in our creativity and the same thing is in our spirit. This ongoing journey. Now do it in a balanced way so it doesn't overwhelm. So animal bliss to the extreme of total inner peace in that sense is obviously basically really a living death. The other extreme, utter anxiety, is also another form of complete, complete um, over being overwhelmed. What you want is a healthy restlessness. The restlessness. Look at a child climbing around, restless, looking, exploring, the adventure of life, sucking in the marrow of life, appreciating every moment, appreciating the newness, the freshness, the extraordinary and the ordinary the unusual and the usual, the unique even in the patterns and routines of our lives. That is the shifts. That's the people that have the sparkle in the eye no matter how old they are or young. The people who look at everything with a fresh set of eyes, they can hear the story, they tell a story they may have told a hundred times with a new animation, with new vibrancy because they're alive, they're living it. And you see their passion, their excitement. Where is that coming from? That's a, what we call a mayan hamizgaber, a, a well, a wellspring that's continuously gushing with new waters, producing, create, creating new energy, always thinking, how can I do it a little differently? You'll see people who plug into that type of, the core main line have that element of constant shifts from one state, one paradigm to another. 
Is there a discomfort? Absolutely. That's what discomfort is. Going from a place you are comfortable to a place that you're not comfortable. But then you get comfortable with this new place and then that becomes the comfort zone and then you climb further. In knowledge, we see that very clearly. As we know things, and then you want to push yourself further, you read a book or you read an idea or a discourse that goes, takes that same idea deeper. It's like the most exciting, exhilarating thing. I thought I had it all figured out and now I'm realizing there's a whole dimension I missed. Or I wasn't exposed to, or I didn't even have, we didn't have appreciated had I not reached the earlier stages. So it's not the earlier stages are meaningless. But built upon them, it's an accumulative journey. Cumulative journey from failure to success to greater success to even greater success. And the fears somewhat melt away when you have that drive. And what emerges is courage. The courage to grow. The, to dare to get out of your comfort zone, your pattern, your routine, your habits, and do something different. To think different, to speak different, to act different. And then, of course, the results will be different. And we're talking about different in a shift of growth. There's that classic story in the Talmud, Baba Metzia, Rab Zera. He mastered the Talmud. There are two Talmudic texts. One is called the Babylonian Talmud, and one is the Jerusalemite Talmud. The Babylonian Talmud was primarily taught in the cities and the schools and academies of Babylon, when the Jews had left after the destruction of the first temple, exiled in Babylon, and many remained there. And then there was the Jerusalem Talmud, which was basically taught in Jerusalem. The Jerusalem Talmud is much shorter than the Babylonian Talmud. They both they have much overlap, but there's differences, especially in style. Here's Rab Zera, was a master in the Babylonian Talmud. He mastered, he reached a, a, a great heights. The Talmud says... He fasted. Some say a hundred fasts. Some say, I think, 40 or 100 two opinions, two versions. To forget the Babylonian Talmud in order to be able to learn the Jerusalem Talmud. The question is asked, a twofold question. Since when do you have to forget knowledge to gain knowledge? Knowledge is accumulative. What you learned yesterday, even if it's ABC, even if it's one, two, three, can only help you get to the next level of reading or mathematics and so on. Why do you have to forget? Why do you have to forget the Babylonian Talmud to study the Jerusalem Talmud? In addition, from a Torah point of view, there's actually a prohibition to forget Torah, which is God's wisdom and God's will, and to deliberately go ahead and fast to forget in addition to question number one. And the answer is, powerful answer. He didn't fast and was not interested in losing the knowledge that he had, the data. It was the methodology. The Babylonian methodology is a very different one than the Jerusalem. In the language of mystical and Hasidic teaching, the Babylonian Talmud defines a truth through darkness, through argument, through counter-argument, through questions, through contradictions. The Jerusalem Talmud gets to a truth immediately. It's like an insight, like an epiphany. One is called, the Jerusalem Talmud is called the right direct light, like the light of the sun. You get the light. The Babylonian Talmud is like the light of the moon, refractive light. 
it comes like refracted, like the student challenging the teacher. One student challenging another student. So it's the challenges that bring out a deeper clarity. So it's a very interesting method. But the Jerusalem method is a different method. And he wanted to learn the new method. That is something very difficult. But imagine. They say by the time we're seven, eight years old, we already have developed the methodologies of how we think, for good or for bad. And especially if you're a good thinker and you have a good methodology developed, and that's your style, why do you have to develop a new method? But that's the nature of a truly curious seeker, of a true academic, of a true scholar. He wants to learn a new method. And it was not at a young age. 40, whatever the age Rabbi Zera was. So it's fascinating to just have a person to do that, that changes their methodology midlife. And that's why he needed to fast. It wasn't forgetting the knowledge. Knowledge is accumulated. It was forgetting the methodology so he can try a new methodology. So it was almost like that shift, that's called a true shift. Now, I don't know if we can expect that from everyone, but from all of us, we can expect some shift. In chapter 15 of Tanya, tremendous chapter on this concept of changing your pattern. He says that the Talmud says as well. And when someone, a custom then was when you studied, you reviewed the study 100 times. If someone studies something 100 times and repeats it, he says it's not considered, considered <coughs> excuse me, it's not considered serving God. 100 times, because it's your habit. It's your comfort zone. Today we may not have that comfort zone, so whatever your comfort zone is. But it goes on. If he reviews his study 101 times that one outweighs the first 100 but you can't get the 101 without 100 correct but that one is the shift you've done something that is different you've shifted from one state to another state so qualitatively something has changed and that's how we're expected of us that's why we don't look at each other and say I'm going to compare how much I accomplished to someone else no you need to do something to the point that it hurts a bit. As they say, give till it hurts. Study till it hurts. Exert yourself till it hurts. Here, of course, hurt is just a, uh, a euphemism. <clears throat> hurt meaning beyond your comfort zone. That shift, we say it in the prayer, in the Shema. We say, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your spirit, and with all your all, with all your might, with everything. Ma'aitcha. But it says, with all your all, with all your much. Ma'id means very much. With all your very much. But your very much is different than my very much. Your very much is whatever your comfort zone is, a little above that. So for a person who, for example, for them to give $1,000 charity is not a big thing because they, they have the money and it's easy for them. That, that, and someone else is difficult to give $100. That thousand, and they give 101 105 is worth more than this person giving a thousand. Not for, I understand from the point of view of the receiver, a thousand you can buy more within a hundred. But from the point of view of the shift, the shift. So there are things that we are equalized in, like for example, the half shekel that was given. That's an equalizer. But then there are things that require you a shift from your comfort, and that really distinguishes between a person who's truly making an effort and truly growing than someone that's just doing. What's comfortable? There are many people in school, for example, that are excellent students by nature. It just comes easily to them. They don't have to make an effort. Another student is a poor student, but they make an effort. That effort often is more valuable and actually can reach 
places that natural innate abilities don't always reach. So my friends, that's the story. The story of the failure, why do we fear success, how to overcome fear of success, is understanding the importance of the shifts. It's not about our comforts. It's about growing. It's about achieving goals that are beyond, and most important, actualizing parts of you that you may not even be familiar with. And this, my friends, is also what we're dedicated to. The Meaningful Life Center is here to push ourselves, to push you, to push each other, to conquer new horizons, new possibilities, to scale new heights, to go beyond anything we've ever gone, getting out of our comfort and doing something different, a shift, a shift to something greater. And that, in turn, opens up your reservoir, opens up your resources, opens up your arsenal to be able to achieve things you never could even have imagined. Try it. Because you see, a shift breeds shift. Paralysis breeds paralysis. Shift breeds shift. Lethargy breeds lethargy. Maybe that's better than the word paralysis. Because the shift opens you up to change. And then when you change a little, it's easier to change. If you get stuck in that place, then you just get stuck. So shifts bring greater shifts. So if it's a goal that's a very big goal, it may be difficult to achieve. So start with small goals, but they should be a little more than what you did yesterday. Add one more flame each day. And qualitatively, that will create a shift that will open you up to add even more. So, please access our resources at MeaningfulLife.com. Please partner with us in every possible way. Share with us your thoughts, your feedback, your comments. Share this with your friends. Help us in our cause by sharing, as well as by financial support. These programs are free, community service, by sponsoring, by going to MeaningfulLife.com slash sponsorship. And let us together all join in this glorious journey, this majestic journey of actualizing dimensions of our souls, of our spirits, of our psyches that we may never even have known about, and prodding each other, pushing each other to grow even more. And I love you to challenge me as much as I challenge you. Everyone have a very blessed week. We're here every Wednesday evening. Of course, that's when I live broadcast, but it's available in the archive. Anytime for access, download and podcast at MeaningfulLife.com. You can subscribe and we send you notices of these programs, of this one and many others that are available. And as I said, everyone have a blessed week. And until next week, be well.